You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to The Political Party, one of the live specials recorded at the beautiful Garrick Theatre in the West End. And today's guest is Andrea Ledson, one of the biggest stars on the Conservative benches and has held some big briefs for the Tory party. Has been Business Secretary, Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, was Leader of the House of Commons. And there are some brilliant stories um, from those briefs and, of course, some great inside stories about the Brexit campaign. Don't forget, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. And you can leave a review as well. Uh, on Apple, iTunes, on uh, wherever you listen. You can leave a star rating. If you leave a written one, I'm told it helps get the show up the charts. So why wouldn't you do that? Um, But yes, email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com with your stories and anything. You can email with anything. Um, Although don't spam me. You know, I can't have junk mail as it is. But um, stories about unusual encounters with politicians have become... (laughs) I never thought this was going to take off, but it has. And I love it. And there's a great email here from Tom, um, who says, I have a story about meeting a politician in the wild. What a great way to describe it. That doesn't paint me in the best light, but hopefully sharing it will alleviate some of my shame. Well, Tom, prepare to have your shame alleviated or, depending on how it goes, compounded. Myself and a mate were lucky enough to have tickets at day three of the Lord's Test of the 2015 Ashes series. Tom, lovely topical start. It is cricket weather, so this is perfect. And I'm just starting to get into cricket. Um, I can't believe I never got into it before, you know. And it was only on the day of that World Cup final, I thought, I've made a huge mistake. I've been missing out on this amazing thing. So... Tom, this is right up my street already. Anyway, it says it's a beautiful July day. The promise of copious cold pints. Oh, yeah. And Jimmy Anderson rattling through the Aussies' batting order. I couldn't wait to get in the ground. Unfortunately, the Aussies absolutely dominated proceedings, which led me to make more pint runs than I probably should have. On my way back from one trip to the bar just after lunch, I was making my way up the rather long, windy staircase, windy staircase probably, but it could have been windy, to the section where our seats were, when I spotted someone pass me on the stairs with an unmistakable flash of grey in otherwise jet black hair. Can you guess who it is? I recognised who that hair belonged to immediately. None other than Ed Miliband, who just lost the general election and resigned as Labour leader just a couple of months prior. I remember thinking, I can't let this moment pass, and repeatedly called out, Ed, in a manner unnervingly similar to Alan Partridge yelling, Dan, across the country club car park. He didn't engage with it, which should have been my cue to give up and go back to my seat. But I persisted. And by this point, I was holding up quite a lot of people behind me on the staircase and drawing attention to poor Ed, who probably just wanted to nip off quietly for some food, perhaps a bacon sandwich. Nice gag, Tom. After what felt like an age of shouting Ed like a stuck record, he turned around, clearly annoyed, and just said, yes. Now, I wanted to say something along the lines of, 
I'm sorry that things have turned out the way they did in the election. I voted Labour. I believe that people will look back on this election result as a mistake after another five years of Tory rule. Inevitably weakens the country. But when he turned round, I noticed he was with his two young sons, which I hadn't accounted for, and I completely froze. What I actually said after a painful period of silence was, sorry, you lost. He tuttered and stormed off while I turned bright red and flunked back to my seat. I still think about it at least once a month. This is six years on now. And I can't forgive myself for getting it so wrong. Sorry, Ed. Um, he says, all the best, Matt. You Reds. Oh, excellent, Tom. You're a Forest fan as well. Firstly, I'm sure, Ed, you were nice to him, Tom. That's the crucial thing. You weren't rude. So that's not on you. So, And also, he probably wasn't as annoyed as you thought he was. So don't worry about it. And he didn't know what you were going to say. So he might have been stealing himself for the worst. And just don't worry because you've said something really nice. I mean, constantly shouting his name might have annoyed him. But um, what a great story. Keep them coming in to politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. On with today's guest, Andrea Ledsom. And this was an absolute treat. We talk about so many things, some great inside stories about the Brexit referendum, about things that have happened since and about what got her into politics, what made her a conservative, what her values are, uh, about the leadership contest, about both leadership contests. Just so many great stories. And I don't know if this is going to come across in audio. Obviously, it's sometimes when you listen to these back, they do have a slightly different feel when you can't see them. And obviously, I'm used to sat there as close to them, closer to them than the audience are. Um what I would say is, and it'd be interesting to see if you pick this up, and I feel like I'm slightly leading you a little bit. It should be for you to conclude this afterwards, really. And every guest has something different. Andrea Ledsom has, and I sensed it immediately, maybe this is just me, authority. She has a presence of authority. And the moment you meet her, you go, oh, you're someone who feels like you're in charge of something. Now, of course, some politicians have that, but never, not quite in the way that Andrea Ledsom has. She has a real presence and she was so much fun. And there's some brilliant political stuff in here. A great mix of funny anecdotes and brilliant political insight. Enjoy, Andrea Ledson. Cheers, everyone. What was that? Well, I was asked, do you want a drink? And I thought, well, I could have water, but I think I'll go for a French martini. Cheers. Where did you get that? Richard. He had to practice, apparently, last Friday night on his partner. And I beg your pardon? It's not bad. <laughs> what can I say? A Friday Frenchie. <laughs> I didn't know you were... I, I didn't know... I... Oh, just put it down for a minute. You've got a cocktail? So yeah. what's in that? Yeah, it's not bad. What's in it? Uh, oh, it's um, vodka, framboise, lime juice, pineapple juice and rose water. It's quite nice, actually. Ooh. I recommend. Can't see anyone. I'm just going to take a photo, actually, if you don't mind, Matt. Not oh, you, no, just you, you do your emails. You, uh, you crack on. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't you finished, so basically, like, yeah. smile. <laughs> Are you smiling? Yeah, hey, no funny hand signals. No, that didn't work. <laughs> it's not working. <laughs> Never mind. I can't believe you got your hands... Do they sell them here? No, this was a special. Seriously, I was asked, what do you want to drink? And I was like, well, anything. Yes, anything. So I said, I'll have a French martini. You start making your own trade deals. That's it. (laughs) Yeah, this was tariff-free. No non-tariff barriers either. (laughs) Handed to me, I'm on stage. But it looks so professional. It is. It's fantastic. I'd offer you a sip, but then everyone would report me to the COVID police, so I'm not going to do that. 
No, that's right. And, and uh, I've got gout, so I can't... I've heard. Yeah, it's gone round. Um, yeah, so I can't drink. I mean, why am I starting with this? Um, Andrea, <laughs> welcome to the show. And thank, th you. thank you for bringing a cocktail for yourself. Um, Andrea, I, I introduced you by talking about that Brexit referendum. Did it feel, and I, I almost started taking the politics out of it, did it feel for you like it launched you politically? Because you'd been around for a bit, but that was the bit where you got household recognition. I suppose, but at the time, I was so excited about Brexit. Really, I know lots of people are going to say, boo. <laughs> oh, God. But I really did think this was the right thing for the country. I still think so, just a bit of a broadcast there. And so, at the time, I wasn't kind of thinking about, wow, this is a real chance. I was thinking, let's vote leave, and that's what we did. So, yeah, it was amazing. It was incredible and terrifying, but, yeah, it was a really important thing to do, I thought. But it was the first time the public had really seen you on telly, uh, apart from your constituents and people who really follow politics. It was the first time you were kind of... It was like your first tournament, really. It was like Michael Owen in France 98. Yeah, I, I don't know, actually. It was a bit of a team effort, to be fair. And uh, I thought Boris and Gisela and I, it was a great team. But actually, in some ways, the best bits were the rehearsals. I mean, I would have loved to have recorded the rehearsals because we had three people who were part of the Vote Leave team who were playing the opposition each time. So one of them, Henry Newman, played Nicola Sturgeon. Every time I look at her, I'm like, you bitch. You know, I just can't help myself. But um, it was so much fun. <laughs> We, we were practising for, I think we had two days of practice for, the, for each of the ITV debates <laughs> and the Wembley debates. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. No, but it was, it was great. And, and so when you would, in the rehearsals, and purely joking, of course, when you would say, you bitch, would Henry Newman playing Nicola Sturgeon yeah. respond to it? That is typical of the hay handed Westminster elite. <laughs> exactly. Not with the Scottish accent, but we were, we were stood at our three lecterns and they were stood at their three lecterns and we were rehearsing all of the questions that could come up and, um, and they were playing the opposition and of course because they were part of the Vote Leave team they were rather better at the opposition than the actual opposition <laughs> were on the night. So, you know, we just fe felt that we did better. Anyone agree with that? Thank you. Can't see you still. So, um, did you chat to the opposite side on the night? Was there any sort of shared backstage area? Did you no. chat to the... No, okay. we had our own green rooms, but we did chat as we were coming on stage. And, of course, you know, the weird thing with the ITV debate was my good friend Amber Rudd, who was also the Secretary of State for Energy, and I was the Minister of State for Energy. She was on the Remain side, I was on the Leave side. And we were good friends from old, so that was weird. And then when we were at the Wembley debates, we had Ruth Davidson, who is... You know, we all, we all love Ruth Davidson, don't we? Surely, yeah. And she was on the other side of the um, debate then. So it was, it was really odd that you found yourself, you know, no longer politically on the same side as people who you are politically on the same side as. But your individual performance really stood out. You and Amber Rudd, actually, were, were really, really impressive on that first debate, on that Wembley. I mean, did you ever think when you came into politics you'd be playing Wembley? <laughs> No, nor the Garrick, actually. But, Fair you point. know, ask me which is better. I'll tell you in a while. The cocktails are better here. Yeah, Yeah. well, you didn't have those in the debate. No. You, you would no, have called didn't. her a bitch if you'd have been pissed off. <laughs> and I'd say you're someone else. Scotland! <laughs> they should have yeah. done drunk debates. I might pitch that to, uh, I don't know, take it. 
Leader, leaders debates, yeah. Channel 4. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear me. Um, so, you worked with Boris on that campaign. Did you, is he different behind the scenes to the Boris that we see? No. Nope. No, no. Is that but a problem? No, actually, no, because, uh, you know, Boris... <laughs> what do I say here? He is my boss. But, um, no, I mean, Boris is who he is. He is <laughs> so entertaining. I do have one gripe with him, which is that um, in Parliament, there is this fantastic hairdresser called Kelly, OK? So she cuts everyone's hair, including Boris's hair. And he always wants to have his hair cut the day I'm supposed to be having my hair cut. So she goes and cuts his hair, and I'm just, like, left. So it is a problem. But apart from that... <laughs> the scissors must be blunted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, he, he is a real character, and when we were doing those... Um, that debate prep, we would go out always. So we did two days, I think, for each debate. And so we'd walk out at lunchtime, about a group of about six of us in the days when you were allowed to walk in a group of six. And uh, we'd go and get a sandwich somewhere. And as we walked along the street, people would dump their black cab or throw their bike in the road. Boris, Boris can have a selfie. You know, he really just has this amazing appeal to people. And then I go to party conference and you always know when you see this huge crowd of people Boris is somewhere in the middle of it. So he is amazing, but at the same time, when we were prepping, he would always take a bit of time to warm up. So Giza and I were like, in the zone, right, what do we need to do? And Boris is like, so um, I've just got to answer an email. Can, can someone just take a note? And, you know, so he is, he is Boris, but he's a great communicator. And is he, with you, is he that kind of caricature, almost cartoons? Are you, uh, 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 let him. Oh, come on, are you, I think we're great, uh, great chums. And uh, you know, I want you to, I think uh, you agree on Brexit. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, is he kind of like that behind the scenes? Oh, yes! Does he have a, does he have a nickname yes. for you? Does he do that sort no, of thing? No, no, he, he is, he, he just is a character. You know, he... Um, when he offered me the job as Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, he said, don't let British Steel go bust and decarbonise. And I was like, yeah, on it. OK, next. <laughs> wow. He, he does, he's just kind of punchy. And okay. I won't tell you what he said when he sacked me. <laughs> well, I was going to ask, because it must, be, it must be very hard when the perception certainly is that it's a government predominantly recruited from one side of the Brexit debate. You're one of the stars of it and you're not there. Here today, gone tomorrow. It's the great game of snakes and ladders. And actually, you know, on a serious point, you know, that is politics. Every career ends in failure. And actually, I would say, having spent four years on the backbenches, then six years in government, now a year on the backbenches again, it's all about your attitude. And it's horrible to be sacked. There's nothing worse. You know, you get that call on the morning of reshuffle day, and it's been, you know, it's been... In the news, oh, Ledsom's going to get sacked, she's this, she's that. And that, by the way, happened every time there was a reshuffle, all through my time in the Cabinet and as a minister. It was always, she's going to get reshuffled, she's done this, she's not done that. So it's a horrible time, whether you're a minister or whether you're a backbencher who's really hoping that this is your moment. And so on the day when you get the call from number 10 and they say, would you like to go and meet the Prime Minister in his parliamentary office? And you're like, oh... 
Okay, then, that's <laughs> it. Yeah, exactly. And then it's a bit of a slow-motion car crash, because you're just like, uh, no, actually, no, I really don't want to go. But you know you have to, so you go along to Parliament thinking, this is just humiliating stuff. And you sneak in, and there's press like looking for you everywhere, and you're hiding around the back and sneaking up the back stairs. And then you go in, and he's like, well, you've had a good run in politics. And you're like, yeah, I know what you're going to say next. I, I, I can say it for you. So it is, it's awful. But then you come out and you have to start again, pick yourself up. But some people basically refuse, don't they? I mean, I've spoken to guests on the show who have told Prime Ministers, I'm not going. Yes. And Prime Ministers who've been told, I'm not going. Now, ultimately, if the Prime Minister tells you you're off, you're off. But did you go with any sense of, well, I might just try and say, move me elsewhere, stick me at transport or, or somewhere else? <laughs> that was never tempting. <laughs> <laughs> but did you, did you think, I might be able to save my skin here? Actually, the thing, the thing I was really, um, really keen on, which is a passion of mine for over 20 years, is uh, giving every baby the best start in life through a real review of government policy to support families in that critical early period. And Boris so has that's a lot what of I them. said to him. <laughs> Do you know, I somehow knew you were going to say that. But actually, <laughs> actually, he's always, in all the time I've worked with him, he's always been really interested. I don't know why. But he's always been really interested <laughs> In the early years and in the importance of the period from conception to the age of two, not just conception, but <laughs> to the age of two. <laughs> it's a very serious issue, Matt. Can we take it seriously, please? Absolutely, yeah. Anyway, so he said to me, um, you, you, can, you could do this piece of work. And he was true to his word. And so since last July, I've had a prime ministerial appointment looking at the early years. And that project is going really well. And it's fantastic because, you know, when you're in cabinet or when you're a minister, you are just in charge of making decisions. You know, you've got stuff flying at you left, right and centre. And you have to look at the brief, you read the detail, and then you've got options one, two or three, and you have to decide. And yes, you can influence some stuff you can set a new direction but you're so rarely in the job for enough time to see something through so there's a huge frustration with being in government which now on the back benches being told right you can sort out the early years I've literally presided you know, chaired this review of what the 1001 critical days should look like from a policy point of view and now we're implementing it and I also get to implement it and actually Nothing could be better. You know, that is really changing the world and making it a better place, which is every girl's dream. It is. Yeah. And I guess you get a bit more freedom. You can speak yes. more freely. Obviously, you have to have one eye on a potential return. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> well, but do you, do you think, well, I'll be back? Well, I don't know. Is that the Terminator again? <laughs> <laughs> But uh, do you think, well, look, look I'll, I'll set up the cabinet for now, but, you know, I'm going to have to start agitating for a return at some point. You know, the, this is... It, it is the big game of snakes and ladders. That's what it is. And you just... You, you, you can't work on that basis. If you, if you wake up every day thinking, tomorrow I'll be back in government, then you never move on. So you have to face what you have at the time and make the most of it. And actually, as I say, doing this work on behalf of the government, really actually nailing something that really matters 
is incredibly satisfying. So you maybe don't have the status of being a member of the cabinet, but at the same time, you do know you're waking up every day motivated to make the world a better place. And, and ultimately, that's why we all go into politics. And the, the kind of the greasy pole and the, I want to be a minister, and now I want to be a more senior minister, and now I want to be in the cabinet. Actually, it's, a, it's slightly torturous. In a way, the freedom of having been sacked from the cabinet is, well, I'm just now right the way down that snake at the bottom again, so you know, I'm comfortable here for a while. And when, so when you're then relieved of your duties, does he say, oh, look, I'm sure you can come. <laughs> yes. I'm sure you can come back. Yes. Lid it. Probably. Did, did he leave the door ajar? I, I, yeah, I think prime ministers always leave the door ajar because, <laughs> you know, that is the, the game, isn't it? I mean, the, the whole, the whole uh, politics of politics is the whips need to make sure that you're going to support the government, that you're not going to walk out the door and start behaving as if you're Keir Starmer's right-hand woman. And so, you know, they, they, there's always that kind of promise of jam tomorrow or huge penalties if you don't do as I say. So yeah, so I was then I was then given the chief whip to be my whip, which I thought was either hugely flattering or was kind of indicating that they were extremely worried about what I was going to do next. So yeah, you you just you just settle into your new life. And of course, you came so close to becoming prime minister. Did I? Oh, yes. I don't remember that. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> you were, yeah. Yeah, you were in the final two. I mean. Yeah. I, Reality telly has destroyed the way that I think about these things. You got to the judges' houses. <laughs> but, um, and now you're in the jungle, I guess. It's um, great. Yeah, you got to the... It must be so odd to be running... Because it wasn't through a general election, was it? You're running for the leadership of a party, which then meant you would have become prime minister by default. Mm. That must be quite a surreal thing, because you're kind of running for both at the same time. Obviously, the electorate for that was just the Conservative Party, so you yeah. had to focus on that message there. But it was a dual prize. I mean, that, did that bring dual pressure? The whole thing was pressure. So uh, the circumstances of it were because we just won this referendum, that we decided we were leaving the EU. And so, you know, very... Honestly, at the time, I was getting thousands, so, so many thousands of emails that my computer crashed and it took down the parliamentary system overnight, blah, blah, blah. People saying, either, you bitch, what have you done? Or Sturgeon. More, more, more frequently, yeah, exactly. More frequently, people saying, I voted leave because of you. You need to stand and be counted. And I tried very hard to get a, 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 a role within a Boris Johnson government then, and that didn't go well, did it, let's be honest. But anyway, so I, I ultimately was left with, you have to stand and be counted yourself. And so it wasn't really, oh, I'm standing for the leadership of the party and the country, it was, I'm standing up and being counted for this. And likewise, because you're going to ask me why didn't I go through with it, the reason for that was because as soon as I was told I was in the final two, I was also told, and it's going to be a nine-week leadership campaign. And as someone who'd had many years in finance, it was very clear that the markets were in turmoil, people were very lacking confidence, the country was very divided. So I said to Graham Brady, chairman of the 22, can we not make it a three- or four-week campaign? It can't be nine weeks. And his view was, well, you know, there are those who want it to be nine weeks, and, and that's just how it is. So I said to him then and there, well, I, I, I don't think I can do that, because apart from anything else, I had a 
you know, relatively, I had a third of the MPs' votes. And in the Conservative Party, you only need 100 votes to no confidence someone. So I was faced with a nine-week campaign. If I lost, people saying, what, what was that for? And if I won, I could be no confidence on day one, and we could have another nine-week campaign. So it really didn't seem very appealing. So what's the sense that the people who wanted a nine-week campaign were <coughs> Theresa's team or the Remainers? Or who, who, who was that? It, I, I think it, it was a combination of people who thought, let's, um, let's wait and see what happens. And I wasn't comfortable with that. I thought there would be a recession. I thought the country would be in a, a great turmoil, and I did not want that on my conscience. And so, yeah, I decided to ask Theresa, are you definitely going to deliver Brexit? And she said, definitely, yes. So I said to her, right, you're, that's it then. You're, you're going to be prime minister in half an hour. And I said to her, please don't tell anyone. And absolutely she didn't. She, she apparently, I've found subsequently that um, she sent her husband and her team out the door when she heard I wanted to speak to her. And when, when we'd finished speaking, they all came back in and said, so what does she say then? She's like, nothing, nothing. Knowing in half an hour she was going to be prime minister, which was... <laughs> quite hardcore. I mean, she is actually a fantastic person, Teresa. I really enjoyed working with her. I think history will judge her kindly. Oh. That's not a joke, actually. I think, uh, I, think, I think history will judge her more kindly than politics judged her in a hung parliament, that's for sure. But you know what was great about that was proof that this is a cross-party audience, because some people laughed and others applauded. And that is, uh, that is <laughs> the true. healing we need. Yeah. Um, you know what's fascinating about that that contest between you and Theresa May is, at the time, I think if you ask most people who should be Prime Minister, to be fair, just because Theresa May had been around longer and she'd been Home Secretary and tough on crime and all that, most people would have said, just the guy in the street would have said, oh, Theresa May probably. Now, people would say, Andrew Ledson was way more talented. Why wasn't it her? Why didn't the Tory party realise that Theresa May was always going to be quite an awkward leader? And all those things had been present and actually, you're more comfortable in your own skin, more charismatic. Those Drink French martinis. Loves a French martini. <laughs> you could have cut through with the public far better than Theresa May, perhaps. I mean, at the time, was that a frustration? Did you think, oh, actually, I think people got this wrong? No, not... I mean, you know, hindsight is a wonderful thing, isn't it? I think, at the time, it seemed like the right decision for the country and for the decision that the country had made to leave the EU. It seemed that she would have the following wind, and to try and fly in the face of that would be you know, extremely hard for the country. And it just, it, it just didn't seem like the right thing to do. So easy to kind of reinvent that in hindsight, but nobody knows what would have happened if we'd gone through with it, what kind of turmoil there would have been instead. Could have been way worse. Yeah, I mean, do you, is there part of you that thinks, thank God that wasn't me having to do that? Uh, no, not really, actually. <laughs> I've always quite fancied the job, <laughs> hence going for it again the next time. But, you know, cheers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, that didn't go well the second time either. Well, it, it, it didn't last as long. I'm not sure you're right, actually. I think it probably did last as long in terms of the preparation. I mean, actually, the first time around, because I naively didn't think David Cameron would resign if the country voted to leave. That was naive, wasn't it? Everyone else thought he would, I didn't. So when he resigned, I wasn't thinking, oh, I know, I'll stand to be the leader. So it was, you know, three, four weeks maximum 
Whereas when Theresa May stood as Prime Minister, the writing was on the wall for a very long time and I was preparing a leadership campaign because I just remember always in 2016, one of my colleagues, Will Ragg, a really lovely MP colleague who was quite new at the time, and he, I thought, coined it beautifully when he said we were trying to build a jet engine as we were taxiing along the runway and that was how the campaign felt in 2016. So in 2019, I wasn't going to make that same mistake. So the preparation was much longer, but the actual campaign, as you say, was extremely short-lived. So, when, when you run again, and then Boris decides that he's definitely running this time, and you had Jeremy Hunt and Michael Gove, Dominic Raab, Matt Hancock, a crowded field. Is that what put you off, or were the numbers no, just not there? just didn't time? get the votes. Simple as that. It's a very tough selectorate, the Conservative Party, quite rightly. And um, they, you know, people, people vote for all sorts of things. I mean, I, I gathered that one of my colleagues said, well, we've tried a woman and that didn't work, so I'm not voting for another one. And I was like, well, aren't you ruling out 50% of the possible people that you can... But anyway, yes, so there were all kinds of reasons, including... Um, also, has that guy the... heard of Thatcher? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? But, um, no, I think people really, really did want Boris. I think they wanted Boris in 2016. And I think he's, he was absolutely the right person for the job, actually. Um, yeah. And just on the, on, on the first time, because obviously there, there was the tension between you and Theresa May towards the end where it felt like, my recollection, and maybe I'm reframing this, but it felt like you got treated quite harshly for comments that you'd made to Rachel Sylvester at the Times of the Sunday Times about... Theresa May not being a mum and that it had been construed in a particular way. I mean, were those comments misconstrued? I mean, I deeply, deeply regret going into an interview with a very, very senior journalist, completely unprepared. I was completely exhausted, but there's no excuse. You know, if you're standing for the leadership of the party and to be prime minister, you can't let that stand in your way. I really stupidly tried to pull out. I was put under a lot of pressure to stick with it, so I agreed to meet her at Costa Coffee in Milton Keynes. <laughs> it wasn't the best venue. And the trouble was, of course, because I'd only been doing this for a short period of time, and I'd kind of been stuck in Parliament trying to win votes from Conservative MPs. So I went into Costa Coffee in Milton Keynes, and people were coming over saying, are you Andrea Leadsom? And I was like, go away, I'm, try I'm trying to do this. And I was like, you know, people were coming over, can we do a selfie? What, so are you pleased about the result? And I was just like, I'm trying to do this interview. So basically to say I wasn't focused and I wasn't prepared would be an understatement. And yes, I deeply regret the, um, the interview, but I very much regret how it really, I think, hurt so many people. I mean, obviously it hurt me a lot, but as that is my thing, I'm absolutely supporting families who want to have babies, who do have babies, who are struggling with their babies. So that was the one thing that was just really, really hurtful. And obviously not my view, but let's not go into that because I walked into that interview completely unprepared and got and, caught out big time. And so, um, had it not been in Costa Coffee and Milton Keynes... <laughs> I mean, in what venue would it not have happened? Ah, well, you see, this is the thing. It, it actually probably wasn't so much the venue as the fact that I did not have my media person with me to, number one, record the interview, which is, oh, my goodness, I can't believe I didn't record it. 
And number two, to say you've already asked that question, you can't ask it again. So, I mean, this is a bit geek speak, really, but when you're in politics, you, you have to make sure that you've set out the terms of a political interview that is on the record. Mm. And one of the things that is a real schoolgirl error is when someone keeps saying, so do you think that being a mother makes you more suited to be prime minister when they ask you that once you should think oh alarm bell if they ask you again then you should think they're trying to get me to answer it a different way and when they ask you about five times you should be saying you've asked me that loads of times i'm not answering that again but actual you know naivety whatever it was completely my fault i'm not making any excuses totally my fault but yeah i deeply regret that interview it's good Though, the, the legacy of that is you're far more disciplined now and just we'll have a French martini and... Who cares? Yeah. All on the record, Spill yeah. the beans to a live Sitting here just drinking it. So after that, did Theresa May get in touch with you? Did you have to, like, ring her and apologise? Was there any conversation behind the scenes? I mean, I, you know, it was really hurtful, OK? So it's not at all funny. And so yeah. I know this is, like, supposed to be a funny evening, but I texted her straight away and said, I'm so sorry, and that is not what I think, and it's not what I meant, and blah, blah, blah. And she very kindly texted straight back and said, I, I believe Lufo, you, I'm sure is. that that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, anyway, yeah. But it's good, it was good that she replied, and yeah, it, it was. was fine. Yeah, I don't know if it was fine, but yeah, it was not good. And then uh, over time, have, th have things repaired? Have you... Uh, we we had a good relationship, we really did, because... The thing is, if you think about it, I withdrew so that she could be Prime Minister and deliver Brexit. So my promise to myself is there is nothing I won't do to help her deliver Brexit. So I lost a lot of friends in Parliament because a lot of the Brexiteers were like, why aren't you resigning? You know, David Davis has resigned and, you know, Boris Johnson's resigned. You know, everyone's resigned. Why aren't you resigning? And I'm like, because I'm helping her deliver Brexit. And so, you know, for, for a lot of people, it was appalling behaviour from Leadsom just looking after her career. To me, it was, no, I, I kind of effectively defaulted her into this position. I have to help her to deliver Brexit. And so, you know, by the end of the um, two years that she was Prime Minister, we did have decent conversations. You know, sometimes I would ring her on a Sunday and say, can we just have a chat? Because I was by then leader of the Commons. And I think it's one of the less understood jobs, actually, in government. Because as leader of the Commons, your role is to get the legislation through. And everybody knew, you know, we had a fisheries bill, we had a farming bill, we had an immigration bill, we had the withdrawal bill, which we never actually got through. But in addition to that, we had 700 pieces of secondary legislation and those very boring geeks speak again but they're, they are all laws that have to be passed in order either to leave with a deal or to leave without a deal or to leave the, with the withdrawal agreement that we never got through so we were tap dancing on our eyelashes all the way through this thing trying to get this stuff passed and very often it was um, on the day you could just about get enough MPs and of course we had a hung parliament so we needed the DUP if we were going to have the whole opposition aligned against us but sometimes there would be a Labour MP or another party who might just support us on one thing so we we were really swans gliding, well, not very smoothly on the surface and paddling like hell underneath, but we, we had a good working relationship. It's been an incredible few years. Um, the one thing we should mention about your leadership campaign, actually, was it was one of the few leadership campaigns that had its own chant. Um, I don't Is know if anyone here, here can remember it, but Is what Tim do we want? Me. When do we want it? No. <laughs>
More people joined in on the second mm. bit. Mm. That got more popular as it went on. Um, I'm just going to keep drinking at this point. <laughs> I remember so there was Tim Lawton, I think, Theresa Villiers, and a few others walking down Millbank, chanting that. Tory MPs in the street chanting, what do we want? Let some Valida, when do we want it now? That was Tim. You know, I met him on my first day at Warwick University. The first week at Warwick University, he was manning the Young Conservatives' stall at Warwick University Freshers' Fair, and me stupidly went over and signed up. Next thing I know, I got a note through my hall's door saying, Hilary Orange Bromhead would like to invite you to a cup of coffee in his car. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? Anyway, it turns out he had a car in those days, which was a... K. Reg Hillman Avenger, which he called Lancelot. And he did, in fact, have a plug-in coffee machine. So when he chanted Ledson Pallidi, you're not now very surprised, are you? <laughs> he did. A plug-in coffee machine yes. in his car? Yes, he did. He did. But yeah. that's just such a terrible thing. It was terrible coffee, I'm telling you, yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know that existed. I don't think it does anymore. It sounds like one of those things, you know when people say you're about as much use as a <laughs> plug-in coffee machine in a car. Like, just like, why would you need that? Yeah, what yeah. Waste of time. I, it was a good chat-up line, I think. But oh, do you think he was trying to chat you up? I don't know. Well, I, it wasn't, didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> um, for the uninitiated, Tim Lawton is a Conservative MP on the south coast of England. Um, he's been on the show a couple of times. And used to come to the show regularly, get drunk and heckle. And um, we had David Davis on once, and Tim Lawton was sat at the front, and David Davis was telling a story about a cabinet reshuffle. He said, oh, and such and such a person was reshuffled. Uh, he said, Tim, why was he reshuffled? And Tim Lawton just went, for being a tosser. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, friend of the show, friend of the show. <laughs> a good man, Tim Lawton, with his plugging coffee machine. And he's one of those great Tory men who comb up the side of his uh, eyelashes in the kind of Norman Lamont... Eyebrows. Eyebrows, yes. I think yes. you mean, oh, I yeah. Do, yeah. yeah. I've not noticed the lashes, it's just the brows that he does. But, um, so being leader of the House is... What's great about that is you're kind of Prime Minister of the House of Commons, in a way, because you're, you have to do business questions, which is a bit like PMQs. You have to be across all the different things. It feels like... I don't know, what would the equivalent be? Like, if it was cricket, you'd be the captain of the one-day team or something like that. Uh, yeah, yeah, possibly. In my case, I made the teas for my dad, you know, the mother's pride and the angel cake. But, yeah, it's you that You had a plug-in teas made in the car. Yeah, exactly. It was, uh, all the rage in the Young Conservatives back then. Um, <laughs> but you had to deal with... A, a, a dynamic I'm fascinated in is the Conservatives' dynamic with John Burko because David Cameron clearly didn't like him. And uh, that felt that there was something personal going on there and that would play itself out at least every Wednesday. But then the context started to change with Brexit and then the context changed again with allegations of bullying. Uh, and I know something bullying is something that you're very um, keen good at? to change. Oh. <laughs> Are you good at it? No, innocent. Um, what, do you, I mean, what was the culture like at the time under Burko? Hmm, well, it was, um, if I put it from the other end of the telescope, the person who is the speaker sits in the chair in the House of Commons and sets the tone. So somebody who is kind of collegiate and friendly and even-handed and calm creates a calm atmosphere. 
And somebody who is the opposite of that creates the opposite atmosphere, if you get my drift. Yes, I get your drift. Thank you. <laughs> I feel like you're bullying me a bit now. <laughs> <laughs> Just shut up and sit down. But <laughs> yeah. Anyway. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, but it did feel, because it was very hard from a public's point of view, to go, because everything gets seen through these now constitutional lenses, is are you leave or remain now? Are you yes or no? And therefore, we support this person as a result of that. It felt like, and I don't want to be cynical about this, but it felt like, and I hope this wasn't the case, people who were on the Remain side of the debate were happy to keep Burko there because they felt that he was on that side of the debate. And I hope this wasn't the case. They were perhaps overlooking other things. Uh, is there any truth to that, do you think? I mean, the thing is, politicians do things for all sorts of reasons. So I, I could certainly think of a few people who were willing to overlook things for the sake of a, an outcome, a political outcome that they wanted to see. So in answer to that, yeah, there were a few people who took that view. On the other hand, I do think that the House of Commons was really rocked by that kind of Me Too scandal, the Pestminster and all the rest of it. And um, so when it came to presiding over a working group which was cross-party, so all seven political parties were involved with it. And we did a lot of work hearing from people who'd been bullied, who'd been harassed, who'd been really badly treated. And all parties, leaders, wanted to resolve it, and the House voted for a new complaints and grievance scheme. So in that sense, Parliament can hold its head up. On the other hand, you in every walk of life, you get some bad eggs. You know, there are 650 members of Parliament. They're not all fantastic people. And, you know, some of them are far from fantastic. And that is the problem, is you always end up with a small number of people. And because it is always so high profile when it is a member of Parliament, understandably so, that it makes it look as if everybody is the same. When, in fact, as we know, in any... Show me 650 people and I'll be able to find you perhaps 20, who aren't such good people. OK, we've got 300 tonight, so... Mm. Where are you? Find 10 wrong-uns. Yeah. Um, but, we, I mean, th there is a situation now in the news, isn't there? Bob Roberts, who's a Conservative MP, who's been suspended from Westminster for six weeks for um, sexual harassment. I mean, just being suspended from Parliament for six weeks for something that serious doesn't seem like appropriate punishment, really. I mean, how do you feel about that? I'm just going to say I don't ever, ever and never have commented on any individual case. So the And, that, and that's not because it's a cop-out. It's because if I comment on one, then I have to comment on everything. And everybody always wants to know, so is Burko a bully, for example. So I don't ever comment on any cases. But what I would say is we really did create a complaint scheme that is totally fair to the complainant as well as to the alleged perpetrator. I'm using those words because they're very much the, the words of the complaint scheme. And so everything is taken into account in coming to an independent conclusion of what should happen. So there isn't a sense that if anybody is suspended for six weeks, it's not because someone's like, oh, let's just let them off. This is an independent assessment by people who are not parliamentarians, they're not politicians. They've looked at that situation in the round and they have come up with a punishment that they think fits the crime that that person has been found guilty of. So, I mean, in any workplace environment, if you accuse your boss of, I don't know, pinching your bum or something or bullying you at work, 
then HR would deal with it. The problem we had in Parliament is there was no such thing as HR. There wasn't anyone to go and complain to and sort these things out, is number one. And number two, it's all in the spotlight of the full international media, and every journalist is fascinated by any accusation, let alone any, anyone being found guilty. So we have had to deal with things like political attacks. So, you know, you pinch my bum, no, I didn't, just you're saying that because you're a Labour MP and I'm a Conservative MP, that kind of thing. That, that's one angle. You get another problem where if you've got a workplace grievance, so maybe it's... Um, an MP might have four staff, maybe two of them can't stand each other, but because they're both Conservative or they're both Labour, they don't want to bring their party into disrepute, so it's difficult to resolve that issue. So the idea of this independent scheme is, number one, it's completely confidential, so it's not in the full media spotlight, and number two, the sentence takes into account all of the circumstances. So therefore, I think if we're putting our faith in that independent scheme, we therefore can't say, oh, well, you know, if it's sex harassment it should be much more than six weeks because it was an independent person who assessed that that's what it should be so I think you just have to put your faith in that sorry that's a bit of a lengthy answer but it's quite a I think a really serious point no it's it's, it's right to take it I just wish we'd have done this at Costa in Milton Keynes I think I'd have... <laughs> I might have not recorded it then. <laughs> but it, do you think there is a cultural problem at, at Westminster it's very hard for those of us who don't work there to know what the tone of it is like whether there is a, a pervasive culture there, not just of sexual harassment, but of bullying. I mean, in your experience, you've been in politics long enough now. Is, is, that, the, is that the sort of general atmosphere around the place? No, it's definitely not the general atmosphere. But the problem is that politics, it doesn't just have like powerful people who are members of parliament and then even more powerful people who are members of the cabinet and powerful peers, but it also has powerful senior parliamentary clerks and frankly it also has powerful heads of the digital service and heads of the catering service and heads of security and so on. So there's lots of different hierarchies. There's something like 15,000 people who work in Parliament and there's 1,000 peers and 650 MPs. So all of the others are none of the above. So there's all of these, not necessarily fiefdoms, but there's all of these hierarchies. And people who are employed within one of those, they do have their route to go through, whether it's their trades union, whether it's through their HR department. But the MPs and the peers didn't have that in the past. And so we introduced not just the complaint scheme, but also the behaviour code that would be, if you like, a set of values and some very clear guidelines that everyone who visits or works in Parliament should be treated with dignity and respect. And if you don't do that, you can be complained about. There will be sanctions. So in a way, um, in answer to your question, no, it's not that everywhere you go in Parliament, someone's going to be rude to you or pinch your bum. But at the same time, there are some people who you might watch out and not go near them. And some people know who they are. And in the past, there has been a kind of a, oh, well, just don't go near them, just you know, keep your head down. Now that's not the case. Now there is a route to complain. There is a route to get proper sanctions. And so I do believe and hope that the culture of Parliament will change for the better. You mentioned David Cameron earlier, and I meant to ask you, did you feel sorry for him when he resigned? I was really cross. Cross? Yeah. In what? What? You think he let the side down? He let well, the, down? the thing is, before, um, as a backbencher, I was, 
I'd set up this thing called the Fresh Start Project with my colleagues Chris Eaton-Harris and George Eustace. And we were looking at reforms of the EU where the UK would remain a member of the EU. And we travelled right across Europe. We met other European MPs who were interested in reform, etc. We'd whittled it down to a manifesto for reform and we were like, da-da, there you are, just go and negotiate this. So when David Cameron went off for his negotiation with the EU, we felt we'd really given him this sort of boilerplate thing, lots of support from MPs. So when he came back without very much reform at all, it was so disappointing, and in my view, it was because he always said, well, I won't, there isn't a circumstance in which I'll walk away. So, you know, like if you're trying to sell your house and you say, well, if you won't buy it for 500 grand, I'll obviously accept whatever price you're prepared to offer. You know, it's just like, why would you do that? That is not how you negotiate anything. So he came back without much reform. And then he said, we're going to have the referendum, and whatever happens, I won't resign. And... I thought that that would be the case. So, yeah, I was cross. I, I did feel he should have stuck with it. I, I thought he was best placed, actually, to see it through. And he had the relationships. You know, the, the EU would have seen him as someone who was reluctantly leaving but fulfilling the will of the people. So I thought he was best placed, definitely. So you didn't feel sorry for him, like when his voice cracks. He said, yeah, I love my country. <laughs> I felt a bit nah. sorry for him, even as someone who didn't nah. vote for him. I, Whenever I hear departing Prime Ministers say that they love their country, part of me always slightly goes... Yeah. Am I too wet? No, we like patriotism. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> but you, but you, at the time, obviously, you, didn't, you, you were cross with him. Have you spoken to him since? Yes. Have I? Yes, I think so. I think so. I just always remember when um, he did his last PMQs, OK? So we were in the middle of the leadership yeah. campaign... And he did his very last PMQs and he came into the members' tea room afterwards and I just happened to be in there. And he came and sat down at the same table I was at and sort of leant back in his chair and said to me, Andrea, if you make it to the final two, don't pull out, will you? Because Nancy wants to stay in her room for a bit longer. And I was like, well, I have a daughter the same age as yours and my daughter's nervous about this too. But let's make it all about you, shall we? So, I've not told anyone that before, so don't tell anyone that, okay? It's off the record, don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. I'll fall for that again. I thought you were going <laughs> to. When you said he sat in the members' tea, tea room, leant back, I thought you could see he was going to say chair. two no. words Lex Greensill. <laughs> Andrea, get me a martini. I wondered if he texted you after he'd gone, but you were still in government to, uh, you know, oil the wheels. No. No. No, I mean, it is... Yeah, I'm sure it, it must have been a huge blow, but I think referenda, care for what you wish for. I mean, I was absolutely clear we needed that referendum, but um, I'm not at all sure that they're a good way forward for the country. You know, I think that they are incredibly divisive. It caused a huge amount of pain in the country. So quite genuinely, whilst I was a big fan of that particular one, I think we do need to be... <laughs> only because we won, you understand. If we'd lost, it would have been a different story. But no, I do, I do think referenda are very serious. You know, in our, in our kind of constitutional conventions, we elect politicians who then decide on behalf of the people that they represent. And if you do go to that kind of direct decision, whilst we do have that kind of um, history of consulting directly when it's a constitutional matter, 
those things are very, very divisive. And I think we've seen that with the Brexit referendum. We saw it with the Scottish independence referendum. I mean, the alternative vote, we didn't, because I don't think anyone particularly knew what it was or cared. But, um, you know, I think if you, if you have a referendum, you have to be very careful. And I do think in future, we need to be much clearer about if we have a referendum and we decide X, then this is what will happen afterwards. And if we decide why, then this is what will happen afterwards. That would be my advice anyway, <laughs> having learnt the hard way. I think that's good advice. Yeah. Do you um, think? Thanks. David Cameron was up in front of that select committee the other week. And one of your early highlights as a parliamentarian, in fact, there was a period where select committees were like the Reading and Leeds of the 90s, where it was like Murdoch. Bob Diamond. They're like, where are they getting these lineups from? It was like Primal Scream. Oh, Custard like, pies. It, it, the whole thing. They were the best entertainment on telly for a while. And the Bob Diamond one, the Libor one, where you take a leading section and absolutely batter him. It was... That must have felt great. <laughs> it was kind of a red mist moment, actually. The thing is, he was sort of saying, oh, it was just, you know, one or two little... He tried to sort of charm people. you a bit, didn't he, Andrea? Kept calling you Andrea. Well, Andrea, that's a good question, Yeah, he question, did, actually. It's a good point, yeah. He was stalling for time, actually. The number of well Andreas was because he could just, like, another 20 seconds and she'll be done. But actually, no, it was a red miss moment because having worked in a dealing room, I had the misfortune of knowing how a dealing room works, so very open plan. You've got the treasury over there, you've got the commercial paper there, you've got the FX dealers there, you've got the swaps guys, and so on and so on. It's all open plan, everyone's calling out their positions. So when Bob Diamond says, well, Andrea, it was just one or two people in, a, in an office somewhere, I was like, no, no, that's not what happened at all. And the briefing in front of me was quite clear that there was something like 175 false fixings on sterling and 167, I can't remember the numbers, on dollars and 250 on yen or something like that. And so I just read them out to him. I mean, it was just literally, no, you're, you're, you're literally not telling us the facts. These are the facts. And, and he was quite shocked by that. And how important was it? Because this was about the LIBOR rate, wasn't it? This was about the yeah. interbank lending rate yeah. that they'd effectively lied about. Well, they... They'd, they'd lied about the fixing, so, so the London Interbank offered rate is the rate at which banks lend to each other overnight, and obviously banks take in money, lend out money, overnight they need to square their books, so the Bank of England collects in the rates from the banks, and not only was their reckless borrowing taking the world into a massive meltdown, but in addition, they were then fixing LIBOR so that it suited their book. And that was just beyond appalling. So I came into Parliament in 2010, so after the financial crisis, but when we were still dealing with the fallout from it. And so having been 25 years in finance myself, I was like, well, where are they? Let me hit them, you know. So this was an opportunity to just set the record straight, really. And how important was it? Because a lot of people might unfairly say, well, Conservatives aren't bothered about that sort of thing. They don't mind if banks are kind of up to no good. It was... It was quite um, arresting to see a Conservative really go in on him, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah, you see, that, that's, the, that's the unfortunate side of politics, is, you know, that whole thing of, well, if you're Conservative, then you must think bankers are a fantastic thing. Well, that's obviously not necessarily the case at all. I mean, I, I think good people are a fantastic thing, and bad people can, you know, resign as they do from time to time when select committees get the better of them. But, um, yeah, I think it's, it's unfortunate that 
politicians get tarred with a particular brush that they then struggle to to really you know get around and prove the opposite and certainly libel i mean not not just to get the truth about what was going on but then also i thought a fantastic conservative policy was that the fines that were imposed on the banks for libel rigging went to good causes like the armed forces covenant and to charities and so on and that was fantastic that you know the wrongdoing was then going to pay for good things Andrew, this has been a real, real pleasure having you on. Thank you for coming on. What happens next then? So, for you, because you're such an impressive communicator. You have a level of authority that very few people in the cabinet have. I mean, with the greatest respect to friend of the show, Matt Hancock. You... <laughs> people... Ouch! On his behalf. People might look at you and say... You're a genuine political star. You can communicate in a way that very few politicians in any party can. Why aren't you at the top table? That is not a question for me. Said she, taking a sip of her. <laughs> <laughs> but do you think, do you think, you know, when will we see Andrea Ledsman cabinet again? Yeah, I, I'm really happy doing what I'm doing. And I think <laughs> Boris Johnson is going to be Prime Minister for a very long time. And so, you know, never say, <laughs> never, say never. What was that? that was just <laughs> it's sort of, behind you, that yeah. That was a deep sigh, I think. <laughs> I heard hissing. Well, I'll tell you what, Keir Starmer's on in a bit. Yeah. Uh, from a Conservative point of view, he's obviously a far more formidable opponent than the Conservatives have faced, oh, for a couple of decades. Um, <laughs> Do you, do, you, do you fear Keir? No. No, I definitely don't fear Keir. I was actually really hoping that we would both be on this stage with you because I was looking forward to a bit of banter. But, um, yeah, I definitely don't fear him, but I, I'll be interested to hear what, he, what you have to say to each other this evening. But it's a sign, isn't it, that Labour's sorting its act out? Do you think, oh, here we go, actually, this is game on there? Yeah, Lisa Nandy was my pick. Yeah, but is that because... You thought she'd be a good leader of the opposition, or is that because you thought she was easy to beat? Oh, no, no, because she'd be a good leader of the opposition. No, opposition, effective opposition is really important. I like Lisa and I respect her. I think she's a really good Labour politician. She was a Brexiteer, yes. And, uh, yeah, I think, she, I think she would have been good. I, I don't, as yet, have a particularly strong view about Keir. I mean, he, he looks the part, he looks good. Handsome guy? It's just like, you know, not George Clooney. Yeah, but isn't that every MP? <laughs> 650, not George Clooney's. Yeah, it's true, isn't it? <laughs> Disappointing. No offence, obviously. You're, you're one of them. But I don't think you'd want to look like George Clooney. I wouldn't want to. No, no. but... No. True. Good point. So, actually, just, just before we do end... Who, who is the be Who are the best-looking MPs? Mm, okay, <laughs> Male right. Male and female. Um, can I do the female ones? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh no, we actually did once play this game. I had a, a group of female Conservative MPs round for dinner at my flat, and we did this. We looked. We went across the benches because you know in. 
in the House of Commons, everyone has their own seat. It's like sitting on the 714 to Euston from Milton Keynes. It's just like, that's my seat, out of my seat. So everyone has their own seat. So you could sort of go across over dinner when you've had a few drinks and say, handsome, rubbish. Yeah, very good looking, you know. And we did that. But that was in a previous parliament and we were very drunk at the time. <laughs> now, I would say, I think Dom Raab. I think he's quite good looking. What do we think? Anyone? Dom Raab? What the fuck is in that drink? <laughs> this. This is good. This is good. He's yes. never going to forgive me for that, okay? Because that's the kiss of death. That's like when I once said on air that I like Wes Streeting, and he texted me afterwards. He's a Labour MP. He texted me afterwards and said, You realise that's the end of my career? <laughs> Ledson says she likes me. But Rob is like. Slightly Is menacing he? looking. Yeah. He looks a bit like you, actually, Matt. <laughs> you know, the haircut's a bit rabby, Yeah, OK. It? All right, I'll go for Rishi, then, because everyone says Rishi's dishy, because it oh, rhymes. Yeah. Is that he's, OK? He's good. He's a bit young for me. And the great thing about Rishi is he will do whatever it takes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I had no idea it was going to go in this direction. <laughs> What a treat. Andrea Ledson, this has been such a treat. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for a wonderful first guest, Andrea Ledson! Well, there you go. Andrea Ledson. I'd never heard of a French martini before, so, I mean, maybe. Does this start a new um, sub-thread in the, in the culture of this show? A kind of cocktail club. Um, maybe I should do like one of those delivery boxes. The political party door-to-door cocktail club, where I send out a box. I mean, it would be a terrible amount of admin. I'd have to... Uh, I don't know why I'm genuinely considering it. What am I doing? The easiest thing to go is maybe just do like a pairing list. And even that's mad. Oh, it's a podcast with a pairing list. Is it about drink? No, it's about politics. But... Um, it says this one's best best enjoyed with a can of tenant super. Oh man. Well, enjoy a French martini. It's the weather for it. But Andrea Ledson was great fun. And of course, this is um one in a runoff. Specials recorded in the West End. There's two more episodes to come out in this run of live shows. And it's been so good to be back live. I mean, I know I'm saying it on every episode at the moment, but oh my word, I didn't realize how much I'd missed it until I was actually on stage. And doing these shows live with an audience. Because I always think I'm loving this. And I love recording the ones over Zoom and the ones that I've recorded during lockdown. But having an audience there is like an immediate focus group for how it's going. And you think, oh, yes, I'm right. That is not so much I'm right, but like, I'm glad other people are enjoying this as well. And obviously, I know that people enjoy it because you get in touch and tell me, but having that immediate response. And also, it's just more fun doing it live with a crowd. It's been such a treat. So if you came to any of these live shows, thank you so much. But thank you enough for downloading them. Share them, spread the word, put them out there in the wild. And please keep these brilliant stories about seeing politicians in the wild. Politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Please leave a review. Please rate it. Tell everyone you know. And I'll see you next time. Ta-ra.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.